We have been talking about Martin Luther, the 15th century Augustinian monk uh, who set Europe ablaze, um, somewhat by accident, but uh, who kept it ablaze by being quite a force of nature. He was uh, loud and um, large and likable, one of those exceptional people who is um, wicked smart and courageous and uh, generally impossible to ignore. We now turn to John Calvin, who in many ways is Luther's opposite. If Luther was the life of the party, Calvin didn't go to the party. He stayed home and read a book, or perhaps he wrote a book. Uh, if Luther was likable, uh, Calvin was generally viewed as being unlikable, uh, a bit of a loner. One of his biographers um, noted that um, Calvin was, it was generally understood that Calvin was easier to admire than he was to like. Uh, where Luther was a bit crass and loud and unkept, Calvin was the opposite. Where Luther tended to write as a rabbit runs, and that is true. I, I find reading Luther to be a real contrast of some brilliant stuff that is fun and exciting and his mind is bold and alive and this really frustrating experience of saying, uh, hello, <laughs> can we call 911 and get an editor in the room? I mean, can somebody keep this man on point? We are all over the place. So Luther tends to write as a rabbit runs, uh, but Calvin was organized and, and systematic and just wickedly clear and concise, and um, that's, that's part of what will make him so uh, influential over time after he dies. I can go on where Luther was into music, writing lyrics of Christian theology, weaving it into uh, tunes uh, that were being sung in the taverns in, uh, in the pubs uh, around Germany. Uh, Calvin, uh, initially at least, thought that the only singing that should be done was of the Psalms. And uh, he decided at some point there shouldn't be even be any instruments. So there were instruments in the Old Testament, but he noted there were no instruments mentioned in the New Testament. So he followed this regulative principle for a while that said if it's not in the Bible, you can't do it. And <clears throat> so... Um, <laughs> He was quite influential, by the way. Until you get into the 17th century with Isaac Watts and uh, Charles Wesley, you just have very little, <clears throat> very little singing that isn't specifically the singing of the Psalms. Uh, where Luther was from Germany and ended up staying in Wittenberg uh, basically the rest of his life after he moved there to, to teach. Um, and he's popular and he's well-known and he's you know, sort of the center of town life. Calvin is a Frenchman who moves to Geneva, which is French-speaking, but it's not part of France. And uh, he is going to live in exile there in Geneva most of his life. Whereas Luther enrolled uh, in law, didn't actually ever study law, studies theology and then enters the monastery. Calvin starts studying theology and then changes and ends up studying law uh, and, and is going to be, a, in, in, wants to be sort of an intellectual, public intellectual, write books, uh, be part of, of society from that vantage point, does not become a priest, does not uh, enter the monastery. Um, so they, they come at this uh, from very different vantage points. Luther's sort of the medieval scholastic. Calvin is more the, the uh, Renaissance humanist. Um, Luther 
draws national attention uh, around his, um, his theological commitments as they're changing, and he has these very public moments where he has to take a stand uh, for the gospel and take a stand in debates with Eck and, uh, and in other things. And um, Calvin is in France, not in Germany. France is very slow uh, in sort of unfolding what's going on spiritually, theologically. So it's very possible, and Calvin's not a big name uh, while this is going on and while he's changing. He's sort of a, sort of a second-generation reformer, sort of a generation-and-a-half reformer. He's not uh, one of the first. He's a little bit older than the second wave. But um, he's able to sort of navigate his transition a little bit more quietly and smoothly. So um, Luther, it's sort of all very fitting. If you want to go to see Luther's grave, He's buried under the pulpit of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. I've been there. I mean, it's, you know, there's no missing it. Um, Calvin left very strict orders that he was, um, he, he, is, he was to be buried in an unmarked grave. He wanted no attention. So, uh, <laughs> Luther, uh, you read his table talks. The man is sharing way too much information about his life and uh, his bodily habits, and you're sort of like, wow, uh, I could have been just fine not knowing some of that. Um, so he's very out there, and Calvin, he, you can read all of Calvin's sermons and know virtually nothing about John Calvin. You don't know that he's married. You know, we know very little about his conversion. I, I spent five or six years really sort of um, a bit paralyzed by the fact that Calvin just didn't ever tell any stories. And I, in, in sermons, I stopped telling stories for quite a while, and uh, people were quite frustrated by that, but I, just was, I was just aware that Calvin just didn't go down that path. So they are uh, a study of contrast. They are on the same team, they are reformers, and um, as we move into Lecture 39, we are sort of following the baton pass. It, it actually sort of goes, in one sense, from Luther to Zwingli and from Zwingli to Calvin. Uh, but we are, um, we're going to head down this path and follow uh, the Protestant Reformation as it, is, uh, as it is splintering. And it goes into these three groups. You've got those that follow Luther sort of formally. Uh, they're not called Lutherans at the time. He doesn't do that. He doesn't want that. But, but there is a track that he lays, the Augsburg Confession and other things. So you've got people that follow Luther. Then you've got uh, people that follow Zwingli, who we looked at last time, the Swiss reformer. And Calvin is going to come out of that group. And then you've got the more radical reformers, the Anabaptists and others. Uh, so we are continuing with um, the lecture on Zwingli and following this. So... Let me just, again, ever so briefly remind you of the big picture, because that's what we're trying to do here. <clears throat> we're giving a flyover of the last 3,000 years, paying particular attention to 100 of the mo more important uh, people, events, and ideas that have shaped things. We're doing this in a better, excuse me, we're doing this with the goal of having a better understanding of today in order to live more thoughtful, informed, God-honoring lives. The premise is you cannot understand the present if you only study the present. So this is lecture 39 out of a proposed set of 100. If you've listened to the previous 38, you know, among other things, 
that while a hundred lectures sounds like way too many, oh my goodness, uh, it's actually perhaps way too few. As Peter Drucker said, if you've got a hundred million dollars to give away, the question is not what am I going to do with so much money, but what am I going to do with so little money? A lot has happened over the last 3,000 years. Uh, history is very layered, and it's hard to summarize in uh, 140-minute lectures. That's a little bit reckless, but I am assuming that you are uh, bright, uh, not particularly informed on these things, so I'm trying not to be simplistic, but I'm trying to be very thorough in defining terms and explaining things. Uh, I am assuming that you're motivated. You've listened so far to you know, almost 40 lectures out of 100, um, and I am assuming, uh, among other things, that um, you're a little bit reckless and courageous because you're listening to a set of lectures on the, the marriage of church history and Western Civ, which is uh, about as politically incorrect these days as you can get. But, um, but again, I, I think just as I have said in the past, you, you can't really understand the, the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. Right? You, I mean, you can walk into the last 15 minutes of a two-hour movie and figure a few things out, but you don't have the appreciation that you would have if you watched the, the whole two hours. And the same thing is true reading the New Testament. You've got to have the Old Testament as backdrop. Well, the same thing is true of our own lives. We need to understand this conversation that we have joined. And so we've raced through these eras. We started after the book of Acts closed. Uh, era one was the persecuted church. Uh, that leads us up to Constantine. Era two is Constantine to um, the uh, fall of Rome, era three, is the first part of the uh, Middle Ages or Christendom. Era four is the middle of the Middle Ages. Era five is the uh, late Middle Ages. Uh, era six is the Renaissance, the 14th century sort of return to the ideas of the Greeks and the Romans, uh, refueling and re rebirth of that culture. And that brings us to era seven, which is the Reformation. This is, uh, we've already had four lectures on this, um, three sort of looking at mostly at Luther, uh, one looking at the Solas, one looking at uh, Zwingli. And so uh, I've noted this is a chaotic period in world history. Not only do you have the Reformation, this big revolution that is not just a, a revolution in the church. It is that, but it's a revolution of of government, it's a revolution of economics, it's a revolution of work, it's a revolution of the family, it's a, re it's a revolution of art, it's a revolution of all kinds of things. You've got, you've got the Reformation going on and it's overlaying itself with the Renaissance and with the Age of Discovery. So all of that brings us back to um, this um, uh, episode in which we are looking at. Uh, we are looking at John Calvin, um, and so he is in that slipstream coming out of Luther to Zwingli to Calvin. So um, as we get started, I should probably note uh, a couple things about Calvin, uh, starting with the fact that not everything that you have heard is true. Uh, there's a lot of Calvin baggage out there. And uh, it needs to be stripped away in, in order for us to have a, a good understanding of who this man is and what he did. Some people love John Calvin, absolutely adore John Calvin. You can't do any better. I had a 
seminary professor who was very thoroughly reformed, so we'd call him a five-point Calvinist, going to those five points I mentioned last time, the, the, the five letters of the word tulip, right? total depravity, which doesn't mean we're as bad as we can be, but every area of our life has been affected by sin. Uh, U is unconditional election, right? predestination, that kind of stuff. Uh, L is limited atonement. Christ died on the cross only for those that are going to cry out to him uh, for him to die in their place. Uh, I is irresistible grace, which means if, if God has elected us, predestined us, we're going to come to faith. And P is perseverance of um, perseverance of the saints, that you can't lose your salvation. So you'll talk sometimes about somebody that's a four-point Calvinist or a five-point Calvinist. This guy was a five-point Calvinist. And uh, that's a a contentious thing in some seminary classrooms. And so there'd be a lot of debate. And uh, he was an old, very stately guy, always in a three-piece suit and very soft-spoken. But he he liked to say things like, ah, yes, you're thinking this and this. But as the theologian whose initials are the same as that of our beloved Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he's talking about Calvin, right? And, and it used to just drive the, um, the Wesleyans, the Arminians, uh, crazy when he did that. But um, some people love Calvin. Some people absolutely hate Calvin. Uh, they, they can't, they just, they, they think everything about him is wrong. By the way, I forgot twice now, uh, the, the Calvinists have their, Time for bad theological humor here. The Calvinists have their flower, like the tulip. Uh, well, he said, this professor said, do you realize that the, uh, that the Arminians have their own flower? It's the daisy. And then he, he sort of imitated plucking a daisy. He loves me, he loves me not, right? He loves me. Okay, I'll stick to history. Um, Here's the point. The five-point summary of Calvinism that I have referenced just now with Tulip. Calvin didn't come up with that. Like it came up, it came up 100 years after he, was, he, was, uh, he had died. It, it was a response. Calvinism sort of really carries the day in Geneva and in other places. And there is a, a pushback on Calvinism. And one of the people pushing back on Calvinism Uh, Jacob Arminius is going to articulate five points he disagrees with. And so then somebody else, and it's going to come out of this 17th century Council of Dort, they're going to come up with a response to Arminius. It's 50 pages long. And then a bunch of years later, someone's going to reduce those 50 pages down to five points. And then sometime after that, they're going to come out with, someone's going to notice that these five points can be captured by the acrostic tulip. But this is not Calvin. This wasn't even something that came out of the Council of Dort pushing back. Uh, the word tulip in the Netherlands where this council was held uh, has no I. It's just tulp. Uh, so the, the, the tulip is in English. This is all happening much later. So a lot of things get ascribed to Calvin that probably shouldn't. So um, let me say that. And let me also say that um, that Calvin is, is associated very strongly with Reformed theology. And so he is a, he's a particular uh, noteworthy, influential figure in Reformed churches, such as 
<laughs> the Reformed Church of America. Uh, and also uh, Presbyterians, especially perhaps the Presbyterian Church of America today, uh, or more historic Presbyterianism that comes out of Princeton back in the 19th century, uh, early 20th century. So uh, Calvin is very influential in those things. But Calvin is not really the first person to articulate Reformed theology. Again, he's not in the first wave of the Reformers. He's more of a second wave guy. And he gains prominence in part because his writings are so good. He writes the Institutes, which we'll look at uh, in the next episode, and it becomes an enormously important and popular book. He revises it. He's writing it throughout the course of his life. He keeps coming out with new editions uh, and becomes enormously important. But he's very clear. He's a distiller. Uh, Luther is all over the place. Calvin is a synthesizer. He's a systematic guy, and he lays out a pathway. And his writing is so good and so clear that um, he gains influence long after he's dead. So let me give you the highlight, the flyover of uh, John, John Calvin, or Jean Calvin, uh, as he was known in French. Uh, he was born in France uh, in 1509 which means he was eight years old when uh, Luther was nailing the 95 Theses to the door in the castle church in Wittenberg. Um, and he was not, again, in that first wave of reformers. He's like the, the younger brother, the kid brother that comes along afterwards. Uh, Calvin's father had grown up relatively poor. Calvin's grandfather had been a barrel maker and a shipbuilder. Uh, Calvin's father had uh, become an attorney. And um, initially, the plan for Calvin is that he is going to become uh, a theologian. And uh, so law, remember, this is, this is uh, pre-Reformation. So the church is a dominant force in society. And so law is very much sort of church law or Christian law. And so lawyers were very associated uh, with the church. There's civil issues and civil magistrates and other things. But um, Calvin's dad is quite involved um, in the church and uh, he has a desire for his son to move into the church. Not as a priest, but um, necessarily, but more as a scholar. And so he gets... Um, he's not a wealthy man, but, but there's some patronage opportunities. Some of the wealthy people sort of recognize that John Calvin is a very bright young boy, very precocious. And so he gets sponsored. He gets some uh, perks and privileges early on. He becomes sort of an assistant to one of the bishops when he's 12. And so he's in the slipstream to sort of move into the church hierarchy, be a theologian, uh, and move up the ranks. But something happens. We're not exactly certain what. He's studying. Uh, he's, he's, he's in the pathway to study theology. He's learning Latin. He's studying all these things. Uh, and, and then something happens, and Calvin's dad decides that it would be better for Calvin to become a lawyer instead of a theologian. Now, we're not really sure. Lots of speculation as to what happened. Uh, some say that, well, he just wanted, um, you know, he wanted Calvin to be, um, to have an easier life or to make more money, to have more influence. Uh, maybe, 
But not really. I mean, uh, in that time, being a theologian was a pretty prominent uh, position. And uh, the church had a lot of money also. So it's not like you, you were guaranteed to be wealthier if you became an attorney. Um, secondly, uh, or the other part of this is that we think somehow Calvin's father, and maybe Calvin himself, has a falling out with the church. We know that when John Calvin's dad dies, he has been excommunicated by the bishop. And so there's some speculation that uh, there's a falling out, and for whatever reason, uh, the, the, the senior Calvin does not want John Calvin to become a theologian. So he pulls him out of the theological track, and he enrolls him uh, to study law at the University of Orléans. And uh, we know that Calvin does well studying law, but he doesn't seem to love it. And so he is uh, diverted, and among other things, he sort of uh, engages in all these discussions about Renaissance uh, humanism. And so he starts to study, he's, he's very proficient now in Latin, he starts to study Greek, he starts to read the classics, he adds some understanding of Plato uh, to the Aristotle he already knew. And when he's uh, 22, he writes his first book uh, on Seneca, uh, one of the earlier philosophers. So you can insert your own joke here. When he was 22, he wrote a book. When you were 22, you read a book. So you and, and uh, Calvin were all on equal footing there. But um, at some point around this, so the study of Greek, remember part of the whole thing that happened in the Renaissance is you've got all these people going back to the original languages, ad fontes, uh, back to the sources. And so he's studying Greek and he starts to pick up on uh, what's going on with this guy named Luther. So uh, the Lutherans are, are not huge in France at this point, um, but uh, there is a growing sort of agitation around Protestant ideas, and uh, Calvin is going to start reading about this. Uh, he's going to be very influenced by uh, some people who he thought were very thoroughly uh, in the Catholic camp who come out uh, and celebrate what Luther is saying and writing and, and argue that it's, very, um, that it's very important and needs to be listened to. So uh, again, Calvin doesn't have the kind of high profile moments, at least he doesn't tell us about any, uh, that, that Luther had when he's debating Eck and he gets backed into a corner and he says, ja, ich bin ein Husseit, or uh, anything like that. Um, no reading of the, the book of Romans in the, in the tower, the bell tower of the monastery, nothing like that. Uh, but over time, Calvin does convert. Um, and we, re we get a little bit of this in his commentary on the Psalms. He talks a little bit about God reaching down to this lowly guy and pulling him uh, out, out of this obscurity and giving him this position uh, of, of faith and, and calling him to himself and even calling him into ministry. Um, but we don't, we don't have much. There are two biographies, one, uh, two early biographies of Calvin. There's lots of biographies of Calvin. 
But there's two early biographies of Calvin that we look at. The problem is when it comes to his conversion, <laughs> they don't agree. We actually have two conversion, we have two biographies, and we have three conversion stories for Calvin. They don't line up. Uh, I'm not really sure what to do with any of that. But um, so for a while, Calvin keeps a low profile. Again, he's not anybody. Nobody's asking him. Uh, and in France, you could sort of keep your head down and be a Protestant, and it was okay for a while. At some point, um, he is going to go to Basel, and he is going to write. Again, Calvin's brilliant. Everybody, everybody thinks Calvin's brilliant. People are starting to seek Calvin out for his insight into Scripture. He's spending a lot of time um, you know, counseling people in that way. So he's going to pull together this book called The Institutes, referred to now as Calvin's Institutes, and it's, he tries to write out a track that people can follow to, uh, to grow in faith. Well, as that begins to get a little bit of traction, uh, it becomes, and, and as France um, sort of clamps down on Protestants, it becomes important for Calvin to flee France. And so in 1536, along with his, um, uh, his brother and sister and two friends, Calvin flees, and uh, he flees Catholic France, and he heads to the free city, he's headed to the free city of Strasbourg. So they make a stop in Geneva. Uh, the plan is to be there for one night. Geneva, of course, now a, quite a big international city, uh, lots of UN stuff there, lots of... Uh, um, lots, lots of reasons, picturesque, everybody likes Geneva, but for, for Calvin, it was going to be a one-night stop. But when uh, word gets out in Geneva, which had just decided, it had been, Geneva was French-speaking, but it was uh, sort of had some independence, uh, and it had, it had uh, sort of pushed aside Catholicism and, uh, and, the, and the Roman Catholic bishop, and it was trying to establish itself as a Protestant uh, enclave, and they had appointed this uh, guy to be a pastor uh, there, a guy by the name of Farrell. When, when Farrell hears that the author of the Institutes is in Geneva, he's ecstatic. And so he decides he's going to head uh, to this pub, this inn where Calvin is staying, and recruit him to be his assistant in trying to uh, build a church, a Protestant church, a church, not, not just one church among many, but a church, build the church in Geneva. So Farrell goes to Calvin and he lays this out, the plan. Uh, you are an answer to prayer, right? You, you need to help me and do all this stuff. And Calvin says, not a chance. Uh, I'm not a pastor. I am a scholar. Uh, I have no interest in staying in Geneva. I'm headed to Strasbourg. Uh, I'm going to be this, you know, I'm going to be who I'm going to be. And uh, Farrell, uh, baffled, frustrated, and, uh, and, and completely unwilling to take no. He sort of, uh, he sort of swears an oath against Calvin and says, you know, God is going to curse your endeavors in all your writing and nothing is going to become of it if you don't stay and help build this church here at this critical moment. And, um, and Calvin, who's very sensitive uh, 
to this kind of uh, interlude, he stays. Uh, some have suggested, uh, we don't know a lot about Farrell. He doesn't seem to be, seems to be a little bit uh, melodramatic, um, not, not a careful theologian, a little bit more bombastic. Uh, but uh, he does persuade Calvin, which not many people are going to be able to claim that they win an argument with Calvin. Farrell does. So this is a young John Calvin. He's got some, um, he's got some arrogance issues. And uh, he and Farrell proceed to cause all kinds of problems in Geneva and eventually get chased out of town. So after he's been there for 18 months, the, the city council votes to send them packing. And, um, and so this is fine with Calvin. He heads on to Strasbourg and uh, he's going to uh, help pastor a church there, a rather large church at the time, about 400 people. He's going to pastor there. He's going to meet uh, this young widow, uh, Idolette de Boer. Uh, he had, he had um, debated her husband, who was, a, um, who was moving towards becoming an Anabaptist. So this idea of baptizing adults. Calvin is going to be uh, much more reformed. Paedo-Baptist is going to want to baptize children. And uh, so he's going to persuade um, his future wife's first husband to not head down that path. But uh, she has two children uh, that she brings into the marriage. And um, he is going to marry her. He's going to settle down and he's going to start writing. Uh, he's going to write a number of books throughout the course of his life. Uh, publish a lot of his sermons. Uh, he's going to write lots of commentaries and other things. Um, so uh, he's going to start to revise his institutes, which will, again, he'll revise over and over and over. Well, in 1541, his reputation is now spreading. His books are starting to, uh, to get out there. And at that point, to his abject horror, the city officials of Geneva come hat in hand, and they said, we're sorry, would you please come back? Uh, and he does not want to go back. He likes his life as it is, uh, but he ends up agreeing, provided, really, uh, they sort of give him a contract he can live with. Now, it's not a big money contract, um, no, no indication of that, but he's given a lot of power as the pastor, not just of the church, but really to sort of reshape the, the city, the town, uh, he gets to help set up what in some cases is sort of a theocratic society. Um, uh, the church and the government are going to work hand in hand to sort of, um, I don't want to use the word police, but um, oversee marriages and, um, and discipline and... Um, how much alcohol people are drinking, right? I mean, some people, this just sounds like, oh my goodness, this is the worst place uh, possible to live in the world. But um, that, that can actually be a, a caring community kind of setting. And when John Knox um, visits Geneva in 1554, um, he writes to a friend that Geneva is the most wonderful place on the planet. It is a... It is the most wonderful city on earth. It is a city that is working. And Calvin will care about all kinds of things, about 
education. He'll care about the poor. They'll care about, he'll build hospitals. He'll put in sewer systems. He'll say all this stuff matters. That's part of reform thinking. Jesus is not just uh, Lord of my life. He's not just Lord of the church. He's Lord of the courtroom and the classroom and the boardroom and, and everything. And so Calvin is going to bring this thinking and this influence uh, to, to the town of Geneva, and he will stay there the rest of his life. He actually uh, will die at a fairly early age, and he pretty much, pretty much agreed that he works himself uh, to death. So the, the number of things that Calvin does, all his sort of civic responsibilities, I mean, he designs the sewer system for Geneva, and again, he's, he's promoting education, and he's making certain that it, all these families are being cared for, and that the poor are being cared for, and that the poor kids are getting what they need, and, um, and then he's preaching um, two different sermons on Sunday, and sometimes preaching four or five other times during the week, and he's teaching uh, lecturing, he's writing books, he's just doing so many things. Um, and then constantly attending meetings, which he did not like. Um, it's worth noting a few other things about Calvin if you read a biography of Calvin. I mean, uh, like a lot of people, I, I had this very mistaken notion when I was in my uh, late 20s and early 30s and we've got kids and you know, life is just, it's, it's life with lots of young kids, three boys running around, uh, causing lots of uh, joy, but lots of, you know, lots of fighting, lots of, uh, lots of mess and all that. I remember thinking about C.S. Lewis and going, yeah, you know, the life of an Oxford Don, you're sort of sitting around, uh, uh, you get to hang out in libraries with lots of other uh, with lots of smart people listening to lectures and doing all kinds of things that at the time when I was in my late 20s and early 30s, uh, you know, watching Barney reruns uh, with my kids, uh, that seemed pretty attractive. Uh, that was not what Lewis's life was like at all. Uh, he was very involved in caring for other people. His brother was a, was a uh, really struggled with alcoholism. Uh, Lewis had was caring for this Mrs. Moore. There was it was just it was very different than I expected. And Calvin, Calvin faces. I mean, as much as he's got power, he faces lots of opposition in Geneva. People trying to shout over him when he's preaching. People sicking dogs at him. Uh, people trying to keep him awake. Uh, firing guns outside the church when he's preaching just to try and uh, disrupt things. So uh, anonymous threats on his life. He had a difficult time of it. He has poor health. Um, hard to tell how much of this is his own doing uh, because he's just working way too much and how much of it is just a, sort of a fragile uh, constitution. Calvin will make some mistakes. Um, and the, the principal mistake when you, when you dig into Calvin and you go, yikes, um, didn't know about that. Sort of the, you know, the, the kind of anti-Semitic comments that the older, the old Luther makes. You have got uh, Calvin involved in the execution of Michael uh, Servetus in 1553. Now, he's not in an official role. Uh, but he, he likely, most everybody agrees, he could have stopped it. So Servetus has fled, um, he has fled into Geneva. The, the Catholic Church had two, um, two uh, 
types of heresy that led to the death sentence. Uh, one of them was to deny Christ, and so it was to get the Trinity wrong. And um, Servetus denied the Trinity, and so he was under a death sentence by Roman Catholics. He flees to Geneva, this Protestant enclave, to try and hide. The city uh, officials come after him, and um, Calvin pleads with him and debates with him and prays with him and argues with him and spends a lot of time visiting him in prison, trying to get him to, uh, to, persuade, to persuade him to change his views, and he doesn't, and, uh, and this man is put to death. And uh, most people just say uh, that was truly uh, unfortunate and wrong of Calvin. Um, so uh, outside of that, if you read more uh, secular biographies, you'll find a lot of people attributing, uh, crediting, or blaming, depending upon your disposition, uh, Calvin with being uh, really an instigator behind the rise of capitalism and democracy and individualism. Um, I think that the two of the things that I think people uh, today, Christians today, don't appreciate about Calvin, most go, okay, I understand all about the Calvinism and predestination and I, there's, there's that big part of Calvin. Calvin, when you, when you read, um, he is, he's a pastor and he spends a lot of time with people. So the idea is that Calvin's just, you know, brain on a stick and he's just sitting around reading books and writing books and thinking big thoughts. But um, Calvin really seems to be a guy who's very, uh, very committed to cultivating community. So he's changing the church. He's reestablishing the church. You have the Catholic church. And now as the Reformation is unfolding, you've got Luther setting up what he thinks the church looks like, should look like. Zwingli doing this. You're going to have other reformers doing this and heading down different paths. And, and Calvin is going to set up what he thinks the church ought to look like. And, uh, and it's all about, there's, there's a lot about community and caring for people and uh, protecting people. B.B. Warfield, a great, um, called the Lion of Princeton. He's the president of Princeton Seminary back um, 19th century. He, he argues that what people don't appreciate about Calvin is, is his, uh, he's the theologian of the Holy Spirit. He calls him something like that. Um, and, and perhaps, I, I just think you look at him and you see his commitment to the local church. He, Calvin would likely be scandalized by uh, 21st century um, Christianity and all the ways that Christians are not sort of much more rigorously plugged into a local church, much more inclined to read Christian books and listen to Christian radio and be involved in parachurch ministries and all these other things as opposed to this real focus on the local church. Um, and the other things um, that we can say about Calvin is that he cared greatly and works uh, a lot to try and hold Protestantism together. He, you know, the, the knock that the Catholics will make against the Protestants, um, and it's, it's an easy, uh, you know, it's a slow, fat pitch across the plate that they get a hit out of the park, is, well, you're, just, you're, just, you're all about protest and uh, divisiveness, and you can't get along with anybody. And uh, it's Calvin that is going to try really hard to pull together uh, Zwingli and Luther. Calvin and Luther never meet. 
they correspond, they wish they could meet, but they're not that close, and at that point they're older, Cal or Luther's certainly older. Uh, but, but Calvin will work to try and pull together the Lutheran stream uh, and the reform streams and pull all of this together to have a Protestant church. Obviously, ultimately unsuccessful. And people say, Calvin, you know, again, he, he was much more of a um, debater uh, and, a, and, and sort of a follow the argument wherever it takes you and uh, don't care about people's feelings than he was a diplomat. He probably needed to be a bit more of a diplomat to pull it together, but he works on it a lot. And uh, the unity of the church is important to him as it should be important to us, certainly as it was important to Jesus. So uh, we're not done with Calvin. We will pick up with him in the next episode, which will focus on Calvin's institutes. Have a good week.